Welcome to Forward, the podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. This is your home for progressive, thought-provoking real talk in the chiropractic profession. Featuring the legends, the innovators, and the thought leaders that move our profession forward. And now your host, Dr. Bobby Maybe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Forward, the podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. I am your host, Dr. Bobby Maybe. If you do not know what the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance is, check us out at forwardthinkingchiro.com. Become a member for as little as $7 a month. You get listed on our map. The map gets referrals. People get referrals when they're listed on that map, no doubt. But membership in the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance isn't just about the map. We have great members-only content, including webinars. We're putting out webinars something like once every week or every other week uh, with great guests, great Q&A going on. It's a tremendous value for our members. And then there's members discounts, and we've got some swag coming soon. So you want to check out forwardthinkingchiro.com and uh, renew your membership. Join us again if you drifted away, or if you've never joined us before, join up. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Parker Seminars. Parker Seminars has a great virtual event. We're still in the COVID-19 world where we're just not ready yet for live events. It's really forced a lot of innovation in the industry and some tremendously uh, excellent live events are being produced as we speak, but no one's doing it better at the moment than Parker Seminars. They are, they are at the front of the pack. So October 2nd through the 4th, 2020 is Parker Seminars XR, and you can check that out at parkerseminars.com. Uh, great guests, great content, continuing education, uh, opportunities to virtually network, learn, change, and earn your continuing education hours. So check that out at parkerseminars.com. Our next uh, sponsors of this podcast, China Gel. So be sure to check out China Gel at ChinaGel.com and uh, contact Justin and the team and find out what you can do, uh, what mentioning the FTCA can do for you at China Gel. They've got some great products, uh, great analgesic products, great soft tissue mobilization manipulation products, uh, and uh, you should definitely check them out. They've been super loyal to the FTCA, and we love China Gel, and it's the only thing I carry in my office now. And then our final uh, sponsor of the podcast is The T-Tool. Check them out at thetool.com. It is like a SUV, a Swiss Army knife, a multi-purpose uh, soft tissue instrument. So it's not just a standard flat blade. It's three-dimensional. It's multi-dimensional, multiple angles and bevels and ways that you can use it. And you can check out a lot of uh, dem demonstrations and get some good ideas of how the T-Tool can save your hands and enhance your practice at thetool.com. All right, so let's get into our podcast. Uh, my guest for this episode is founder and CEO of Pain Care Labs, founded in 2006 with the mission to eliminate unnecessary pain. My guest invented and patent patented VibraCool vibrational cry cryotherapy to treat tendinopathies and de decrease opioid use. And her disruptive Buzzy device has been used to control needle pain for over 35 million needle procedures. To date, her mechanical stimulation technology has been proven effective for over 50 RCTs and was named industry leader in non-invasive pain relief by Frost and Sullivan. Pain Care Lab's new Duotherm vibrating low back pain device is the first to combat opioid use by combining six drug-free pain relief met methods. 
to develop her neuromodulation pain reduction platform. She was awarded over $2.8 million in fast track funds by the National Institutes of Health. She wrote the patents for cooling and vibration utilization to decrease pain and is working on a new lymphatic and fascia adaptation. In 2014, the company secured FDA indications to include treating pain from myofascial trigger points, muscle restriction, and muscle tension. Her speaking venues include Exponential Medicine, Bloomberg, Converge, AARP Life After 50 Plus, TEDx, and TEDMed. She has been named a 2018 Healthcare Game Changer, a Healthcare Transformer, Wall Street Journal Idea Person, Most Innovative CEO of the Year by GA Bio, a Top 10 Disruptors in Medical Tech, and Top Women in Tech to Watch by INC Inc. She is also known for turning down Mark Cuban, Rob Herjavec, and Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank. So please welcome to the podcast, the wonderful Amy Baxter, Dr. Amy Baxter, F-A-A-P, F-A-C-E-P. Got to have those initials. She's the CEO and Chief Medical Officer of Pain Care Labs. Enjoy. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Forward, the podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. I'm here with Dr. Amy Baxter. Uh, Doc, we've been trying to get this thing to happen for a long time, and I'm happy that it's finally, it's finally happening. Well, it's, it's Pain Awareness Month, so it couldn't be a better time. Yes, I'm going to start easy on you because this will be the question that I think a lot of people will wonder when, once they read your bio is like, how... How did a pediatrician get into the musculoskeletal pain world? <laughs> I ask myself that every day. I was always interested in pain and suffering. So I first did research on needle pain. I then moved to research on validating scales. So I made and validated a nausea scale, which is used all over the world for kids with cancer. But the needle interest and pain morphed into needing a solution for vaccines and injectable pain. And that is what led to learning more about gate control, how pain works. And at the end of the day, I ended up using the device that we'd invented for musculoskeletal pain. Yeah, a shocker that the, the little kiddos would have pain, right? Musculoskeletal pain. One thing that was interesting was people were buying our device, which is called Buzzy, because it has mechanical stimulation that makes a buzzing sound. They were buying the device for arthritis injections, for juvenile arthritis, for Crohn's, lots of other musculoskeletal type things. And we found that they were telling us they were using it for their hip pain. They couldn't go to sleep at night without using it for their knee pain. And I blew off that information for about eight years because I was so focused on injections. Well, when it comes to like, uh, and we're going to get into the differences between different types of stimulation through devices, but I think a lot of the world in general, when you look at guidelines, when you look at the research of passive therapies and electrical stimulation, I think a lot of the world's blowing off electrical stimulation and its benefits. Yeah. Well, and the, the truth is, and this is only research that's been published in the last five years, is that we didn't really understand how important the variables surrounding the physics of electricity were. 
And in general, with any of the energy therapies, whether it's ultrasound, whether it's pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, whether it's vibration, mechanical stimulation, all of the elements of physics matter. So the target matters, the frequency matters, the amplitude matters, and this is what's caused electrical stimulation to get a, a checkered past. We didn't know until recently, for example, that the, there is an intrinsic frequency at which the Pacinian corpuscles, the Raffini corpuscles, all the mechanoreceptors respond at specific frequencies. If you're digging in the wrong place, you're not gonna get as good a response. If it's a deeper versus a more superficial nerve, you've gotta have more amplitude to reach it. So I think that electrical stimulation has gotten a, a skeptical rap deservedly because we didn't understand enough of what the precise way to apply this. It wasn't that electrical stimulation worked or didn't work. Uh, the, the devil is really in the details. That is actually not unusual for most of the tools, at, at least in the mechanical uh, musculoskeletal world that I exist in. That's not unusual for all the modalities we'll deploy upon a patient, whether it's soft tissue work, the chiropractic adjustment, manipulation, uh, therapy, rehab, exercise. Like you have to kind of know when to pull out what you're going to use out of the bag and when to leave it in the bag and not use it at all. So one thing when you say that there's a skeptical audience to this, I think especially our forward thinking chiropractors they are skeptical of electrical muscle stim at this point. For so many years now, we've been told it's absolutely worthless. It's better used as a doorstop. Insurance, <laughs> insurance companies are like, you know, we got to get out of this passive care nonsense and into active care. Um, there will be people listening to this podcast that, oh my God, we're talking about a passive therapy. I am not interested at all because all passive therapies are worthless is already what's trained into their minds which is a, almost like an overreaction to what they, the chiropractors have been doing in the past, which was like all passive therapy and no active care at all. And, uh, and hopefully you can help us in this podcast, bring it back to the middle a little bit with some rational science. Well, sure. And I think that this is probably the best way to start is to lay a groundwork on the, the tissues themselves. So as you know, if you think about tissues as the suspension bridge that connect the bones to each other. And so you've got the, the muscles and you've got the tendons and you've got a dynamic tension between where these muscles and the tendons attach in the bones and the belly of the muscle contracting to move it. So you've got a whole lot of different levers and really a, a, an erector set, a whole mechanical kit that is your body. So the thing is, if you think about this analogy of the, the suspension bridge, the tendons, the tissues that connect the two edges of the bridge are going to have a resonant frequency. They're going to have, if you whack them with something, they're going to vibrate at a certain frequency. And that's going to be dependent on the amount of tension between them. It's going to be dependent on the, the amount of fat dampening it. It's going to be dependent on a whole lot of physics variables within the physiology of that tissue. So once you think about this on the really macro scale of muscles attaching to tendons, then you can start to get down on smaller scales. So then you've got nerves, you've got the, the 2A afferents that are wrapped around muscle spindles, you've got the different nerves that are transmitting different information. And 
when you go even smaller and start looking at the actual cells themselves, they have mechanical cushions on the outside called integrins that transmit whatever physical force they get. So whether the physical force comes from uh, an extraordinarily, you know, 10,000 hertz of ultrasound or whether it comes from a 200 hertz mechanical electrical flywheel or whether it comes from an electrical stimulus that's popping in there at 120 hertz, there are different frequencies that are going to cause that resonant frequency of the tissue to react. And if you are doing push-ups, we know that by applying a sub-damaging amount of force, you cause growth. You know, if you have a, a broken leg and you put electrical stem on it, or if you have a normal leg and you walk, that bone is going to get stronger because of the mechanical force applied to it. So all of this really long um, framework is to say that I think that it's really easy to lump each modality into a works doesn't work simplicity. But the reality is that all of the tissues are going to behave in a certain way based on a lot of factors. As we understand that, it makes it a lot easier to understand why some energy therapies are going to work some places and some just aren't. On uh, so, would you have an answer? To Sorry, the that question? was a lot. <laughs> no, no, no. Would you have an answer to the question? How do we decide what therapies would work best for certain tissues? Oh, that's a good question. So I think it depends on what the goal is. Whether you're trying to do pain management, whether you're trying to protect a muscle before you start working out, or whether you're trying to overcome spasm later. So I think that there's, there's a lot of different modalities. First of all, for pain, uh, we know now that the most effective way to use gait control theory, which is, you know, you bang your elbow, you rub it, and that stimulus overpowers the very small A delta pain stimulus. So um, we know now that the most effective of the mechanoreceptors for that is the Pacinian corpuscle. And it is the deep one. When you look at the classic picture, it's the one that's green and sort of looks like it's a, an onion. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But those are, those are the most deeply buried. And so the, the frequencies that trigger Pacinians are 180 to 250 hertz. So that's a lot faster than most TENS units are. They're also deep because they're doing position sense they're around the joints so they're doing the lift your arm you know where are you in space proprioception um, and precisely proprioception so so they're the ones that are the most effective for pain management now if you're talking about a um, a chronic annoying pain rather than a big sharp pain then you might be better off stimulating the Messner corpuscles. So the Messners are the ones that are on the surface. They're the ones that um, menthol or icy hot or camphor, any of those little tingly things that evaporate and leave a feeling, those are the ones that trigger Messner corpuscles and Messners are super slow. So those are about two to five hertz optimally causes them to fire. So that's where having a little superficial TENS unit that you might put on all the time what you're really doing there is not blocking pain you're just causing a stimulus that the body can recognize more so the pain's still getting through but if it's a really light nagging pain and not a sharp intense pain that may be sufficient 
the the other part of of energy therapy that is important is trying to overcome some of the body's defenses at protecting itself. So if you have an overuse injury, if you have a tendinopathy, if you have, as I did last week, um, spasm in my shoulder because I had a little C3-4 pinch. Um, so as all the trapezius got spasmed, in order to try to get those muscles to relax, sure, you can use heat, but what's better is actually a mechanical stimulation in more like the 150 hertz range, and that's been found to separate the muscle fibers without ripping them. So there's a ton of information on delayed onset muscle soreness, even a meta-analysis, and all of that is using this mechanical frequency before working out, before manipulation, to separate the muscle fibers without causing lactic acid and catecholamines to be released from ripping them. So there, there's, there's really different ways to use it depending on the goal. Now, this goes back to the issue of different modalities and people claiming they do not work uh, with, with such conviction. And it's a lot of times I've found that it, it's really about the application of the therapy. And yeah, if you, if you applied the wrong therapy or the wrong situation, of course it didn't work. So, uh, well, and you know, one thing that's interesting, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's a, a, a big review study uh, about electrical stimulation, which said that about half of the therapists don't use the proper amplitude because the, the patients don't like it. It hurts. And so most therapists I find will ask the patient, um, where do you want me to put this, this intensity when really it's only going to work at a certain amplitude because it has to penetrate down to the Pacinian corpuscles. And if it doesn't, then you're not getting any effect out of it. So I think, you know, this study um, by Vaughn et al. said that 50% of electrical stimulation is, is given an inadequate intensity. And I, just as you said, you know, how you use the modality and when you use it is really, really important. And I think that electrical is a lot more finicky than mechanical because uh, mechanical, one of the things that happens when you're using a vibration unit is that because it's muscle and tissue, the vibration frequency is going to decay as it spreads. Yeah. So, so long as you start fast enough, as it spreads, you're going to mop up all the slower frequencies. But if we, you have only one stimulation at one frequency, then if you're digging in the wrong place or you don't have enough um, amplitude, then it's just never going to work. Well, you showed me this in, in person, but maybe you can explain to people the difference between mechanical stimulation and electrical stimulation. I mean, it, when you say it out loud, it's obvious what the differences are, but just to clarify for the audience. Sure. Well, so, I mean, electrical stimulation, you have to put on leads so that you can generate a current passing between two different poles of, of, of uh, an electrical generator. So iontophoresis is something we used to do a lot in pediatrics where we would try to drive a lidocaine in through the skin. Yeah. But regardless, when you're using electrical stimulation, you've got two or four poles and you're driving electricity through an area. Mechanical stimulation is as simple or as sophisticated as touching somebody with massage or using a Theragun to pound the crap out of them. So when I use mechanical stimulation, I'm using it specifically with elliptical cylindrical motors 
that are perpendicular to the skin. So the torque of the energy is perpendicular. So it's gonna pass in a vertical wave down through the, the tissues. And the reason that that is important is because you wanna penetrate as deeply as possible to get to the pachinian corpuscles. And then this, this frequency of a mechanical stimulus has to be at a light enough amplitude that it's not gonna cause damage as it passes in a wave. So uh, yeah, so a lot of people have these uh, massage guns now that uh, they'll, they'll distribute the same force vector, which is perpendicular, straight up and down. It's like a reciprocating saw. Uh, but they're basically just beating the crap out of people in their clinic. Right, and those are really for muscles and not nerves. You right. know? So, so those are really aiming to um, rip the muscle fibers apart. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and they do give increased range of motion. And they, and they're, of course, look fantastic in slow-mo. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but and waves, if you've got a spasm, yeah. and if you've got a spasm, they're also really useful. But for a, for first of all, for the 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 DOMS literature, the delayed onset muscle soreness. So when you're using mechanical stimulation in that environment, five minutes of vibration in this 150 to 200 range is equivalent to 15 minutes of massage and 30 minutes of stretching. So you get an idea that what you're doing is just speeding something up, but you're not really doing a different procedure than you would with a massage by hand or with stretching. It's just that when you use a, a light elliptical flywheel, um, I don't like to say vibration because then people start thinking about those, you know, things in the fifties where people were trying to lose weight by going, yeah, yeah. Over somebody. Um, you know, vibration is sort of like Eastem where it's gotten a really bad rap because people weren't sophisticated enough to realize all of the parameters that you had to control so they would just find something at Brookstone, throw it on somebody, say, yep, it worked or no, it didn't, and lump all of the vibratory mechanical stimulation therapies under that same umbrella. So we, we enter an interesting crossroads in the podcast right here, right now, uh, because we're basically interviewing two different entities inside one brilliant person that is named Amy Baxter, MD. <laughs> We are interviewing the person and we, we have to get to some of the, I know you don't like talking about the personal stuff because you're like humble and all that other crap, but we got to get to that per, that stuff. But there's also a product involved and we're, we're interviewing a product here as well. So you've laid enough of a baseline. Let's talk about these products that you have produced, like the story, the what's come of the story, what do we have that is in use now and what kind of benefits that, that kind of, Let's develop that timeline. Tell me about the products. Sure. Um, well, She's all excited. She's like, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, you know, one of the hard things when you're being interviewed is how far back do you go? Because all of us are so interested in our own stories, but other people rarely are. So it's trying to find out when would this become interesting to, uh, to people. So I began this journey because I'd done research on needle pain. And when my own kid had a really awful experience because the nurse was just oblivious to his pain and I think was a little bit sadistic and was like, you better sit there and be still or this is really gonna hurt. And then jammed in four shots at once. And it did hurt. And then he became so afraid of the doctor that he would vomit when he had to go. So that was not going to be a good paradigm for a successful adult going to get healthcare. Yeah. The, the idea with the device 
was that if parents and patients who were afraid of needles could control that pain themselves, then it would decrease fear and it would improve adherence to just general medical practice. So I got a grant from the National Institutes of Health, developed a device that had not just an eccentric flywheel uh, cylinder motor, but also had ice because there's a whole different pathway for pain relief that's called descending inhibitory control. And the idea of this is that something that's obnoxious enough to make your brain aware of it constantly, but it's not dangerous, the brain will try to drown that out. So it's mm -hmm. like drowning out the fire alarm that's going on in your room, you know, the, the chirping sound when the, when the uh, fire detector is run out of batteries. It's drowning out the leaf blower so you can do something else. You do that with pain too. And so descending inhibitory control is classically done with ice. It's annoying. It passes on a much slower nerve than either the, the A delta for pain or the A beta for, for motion. But once the brain senses it, it's like, okay, we just need to shut down everything coming from this area because it's obnoxious. So yeah, I, that, together, I think that fire alarm uh, analogy works really good because the brain's sort of like, I need to save space for an actual fire. So calm down, chief. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Nothing to see here. Let's go about our business and try to focus on something else. Um, so, and, and of course the, the converse is true too. I mean, if you are an expert in music and you go to the symphony, you can tell when there's a tiny shade of a mistake or when someone does something really exquisite, when you have chronic pain, you become an expert in your expert body's pain. Nociception. I'm a nociception master. <laughs> Check out my bad skills with my nociception. <laughs> so anyway, so bottom line is we, we experimented with different frequencies. We got the frequency that blocked needle pain. Turned out it worked better when you used ice with it. And so I developed an ice pack that would freeze solid so that it would not allow any decay of the frequency or amplitude of the mechanical stimulation. So putting those two things together, I made it look like a cute B, because why not? And um, and so that now has been used for 35 million needle procedures and is between about 75 and 85% effective at decreasing injection pain. That's great. That, it turns, it's, it's, it's cool. No, um, it's, sure. it's significant. You know, the, 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 the genesis of that is Sometimes I get patients that bring in their infants for chiropractic care and I'm not a baby twister. Like I don't, I don't like to pop the babies. I don't even think I've really ever popped a baby. What mm -hmm. I really would like to do is, is empower the mother or, or if oh, the father's yeah. there too and show them what they can do for uh, mechanical relief. Because if, when you're a pediatrician, you know, if a pa if a baby's feeling musculoskeletal pain and you palpate the baby, they will, twitch, jump, react somehow, but they can't tell you it hurts. They can't tell you it hurts when I roll or crawl or try to feed. So I just try to empower the mom. Like these are the things you can do at home. And then they go home and they're like, Oh, that, that stuff works. And now it's a, it's a mommy baby relationship and it's not a doctor relationship. And they don't look at me as some sort of savior. So this oh, might be a little bit yeah. opposite with immunizations. It's like, at least you can, with the product, you can have the parent, help the child so the child doesn't feel um, lost or helpless or out, have no control over their, their pain or their experience when they go to get an immunization or a shot or an IV or any other sort of injectable type of thing. So I think it empowers the, the, 
the child parent relationship, which is the emotional tag here that's very important. Mm. Well, and adults too. I mean, the one thing that we know now about how pain works is that pain is the brain's opinion of how safe you are. Yeah. Which is why if you're playing a game, if you're out on the soccer field, you can twist your ankle and play through it because your brain is focused on something else and you feel safe. It doesn't start hurting until you get home that night and you don't have anything else to think about. And then you start worrying about whether you really hurt something and that fear ramps it up, not having a distraction ramps it up and feeling out of control ramps it up. Now we take, we, we, we've got the product established, but now let's go to the person, Dr. Amy Baxter, who's brilliant. Your, your background in, in medicine, you know, pre-med where you're studying to become a doctor, how would you classify yourself? Were you more of an engineering mindset? Were you more, much more uh, fascinated by physics or by the patient care pros- project uh, or prospect of patient care? I mean, obviously you've got some sort of mechanical brain in there where you were starting to think about ways to invent things, but do you have like a lab in your, in your garage where you're tinkering? Or how I did totally this happen? did. <laughs> really? Actually, yeah, I I um I grew up reading these books called the Mad Scientist Club, and I had a room in my basement that I called my lab, which truthfully was just you know a cheesy chemistry set like you used to get for Christmas. But I I I dissected a squirrel once, um, <laughs> uh, and then I I wired an underwater. Project Hydro Alpha with little lights everywhere for my ninth grade science project with, you know, here's where the hydroponics go and here's where this goes. But truthfully, it was really just a bunch of blinking lights, but that was cool. So, yeah, I'd always been a tinkerer. When um, we took part of making Buzzy before we got the, the NIH grant was we got a bunch of cell phones and smashed them and took them apart so that my, this is my kids and I, so that we could, we could find out where is the motor? How does this make a vibration? How can we make it stronger? What do we need to do to change that? So that, that lack of fear of wiring and electricity was always part of, um, part of who I was. I mean, I'd be the person to take apart the remote control car to see if you can make it into something that's a little bit more entertaining than just a car that's going to drive over Barbies. So, um, well, your mileage may vary on what you did with your car, but (laughs) that, uh, so, so I did do a lot of that when I was in medical school though. I think the thing again, that I was drawn to was prevention of suffering. And it was really interesting to me, first of all, that I wanted to bridge the gap between fear and knowledge. And so many patients and families didn't actually want me to help them get over that bridge. They want me to tell them what to do, but they weren't as interested in taking control themselves. Interesting. I am convinced that a huge part of medicine is that patients need to feel empowered to be responsible for, for their feelings, for how they, for their pain, for their well-being, for their diet, for all of these things. So to the extent that we can use the tools at our disposal to give patients this feeling of power over pain and power over their diet and power over their health in many ways, I think it is a a critical part of what we've missed out in medicine. Oh, absolutely. Particularly the pain part where, you know, most, most of the audience who's listening now knows, I mean, their, their patients come in and say, just take this pain away, make it stop. Uh, That's that's not the same as taking responsibility for how it got there, what it actually means, self-modification, 
using the right tools in the process to to self-modify and, and then you know not overburdening this burdening the system by knowing when to check in about pain and whether it's serious or not or whether you can manage it on your own yeah yeah i think that that knowledge is and that's that is a really important thing and you know as you say it i realize that because we don't want to hurt patients using e-stim is this we don't um, want to hurt so most patients well <laughs> there's a couple out there sometimes fair enough fair <laughs> enough but yeah i think that that that's an interesting thing because we're asking the patients about e-stim that also makes them feel like holy crap you don't know what you're doing do you i don't know if you you know i'm not the one who's supposed to know what the right amount is yeah. and i'm not sure what it's supposed to feel like so i think that that actually could be one reason why it doesn't work as well in the in the wild as it does in clinical trials because in a clinical trial someone's got a number that they have to hit and they just turn it on and go and this this feeling of you're not sure what's really going to help me may actually undermine the therapeutic alliance well that's your background as a medical doctor as a physician they they beat the living crap out of you to never say i don't know ever again when you're a resident right that's yeah a, that's yeah. not a valid answer you can't say i don't know <laughs> yeah i've heard that well, I've heard that a you know, to times. be honest too this is one thing yeah it's it's i'll, I'll get off on pharma in a few minutes because i quit practicing about three years ago and uh, i have really realized just how suborned and how uh, insidious getting pharma into our educations is. But yeah. first of all, you're right. I mean, we, we do go to school for, I, I went to school for 12 years. So at the end of 12 years, you are pretty confident that you've seen just about every variant on things. And you're right, you have. I mean, that's a, it's an excessive amount of schooling. But I think that that's one thing that is good about a lot of the modalities that are kind of pre-programmed. So things like menthol, you know, you've got a 10% or a 5%. Um, when I was pinched my neck, the, the ten, I, I did a randomized controlled trial of all the different creams I had and the 10% <laughs> menthol, I was able to judge that was the best, but I didn't have to decide, do I want to try five or 10? I just put what was in the stop pain rolly ball on and, and looked at what was in it later. So I think that things that are a speed also may be helpful for particularly older patients or patients with pain who don't want to have to figure something out. Um, and, and vibration when the, the motors in our devices are calibrated to a specific frequency because that's the neuromechanical receptor we're aiming for, that's the frequency we want. So that makes it a little bit less guessworky when you can either choose to put heat on, you can choose to put cold on, but at least the frequency is going to be straight up the same all the time. So the, the, the product, the buzzy and all that, we're, we're at a set frequency. Right. And I we're probably should say, so, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the way I got into musculoskeletal and vibrocool, which is our primary line for musculoskeletal stuff, is uh -huh. that one of my colleagues told me that he had been in opioid recovery for 20 years and he had to have a total knee and he asked if fuzzy would help and the the end of the day he used the large vibration unit that we have to not take any opioids at all after surgery so that was when i decided to quit pra practicing medicine decided that there was probably a bigger need this was three years ago so 2015 2016 
I realized that we had something that could get people through surgery with zero opioids. And that was when I quit practicing. There's one study now with the, the Vibracool. So we, we put the same frequency unit into uh, neoprene cuffs so that you've got compression, you've got the vibration, and under the cuffs, you can either put the really thin ice packs that are frozen solid, or you can put a hot pack that is one of those crystalline things that will be solid. So it'll transmit the frequency. But the, the knee version of what we have has now been used in an ACL reconstruction study, and it reduced opioids 35% from a coaching group that was trying to be coached to reduce opioids. Gotcha. Yeah, that's great. So you've got in one product, you're going after mechanoreceptors, uh, heat or cold, uh, mm -hmm. temperature receptors, Ruffini corpuscles, um, Corpinian corpuscles. Was that Pachinian. So yeah, so, so Pachinian, yeah, yeah, okay. the Pachinian are the position sense ones. Those are, those ones are the fastest. And then Ruffini are the stretch ones. So okay. as mechanical stimulation spreads in a wave, it's going to stretch those Ruffini corpuscles. So you get a little pain relief from that. The same, that those are the ones that, that massage uses. Um, there's also Merkel discs, which are the deep pressure one. That's why we have a compression strap with neoprene. So it pushes down. So you get the Merkel discs. And then the really light ones are kind of the mopping up at the end. And those are those Messner ones that are the, the, the icy hot, the, the yeah. menthol, just, you know, the, the tingly bits. Those are, those are the ones. So we're aiming for all of those, but we're also aiming for the, the decrease in fear that patients have when they can choose different modalities. Yeah. You ever see something about Mary, the, the movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and like I did. The, the, the serial killers in the car, and he's like, you know, I got. You ever see seven minute abs? Well, I got six minute abs. <laughs> it's like, is there any other receptors that you can go after to add to the product? <laughs> is well, there anything else you can add? Well, um, so interesting. So my my I'm NIH funded right now, looking at a low back pain device and opioid reduction. I believe that the, the 1A afferents that wrap around muscle spindles uh -huh. have been neglected in getting credit for decreasing pain. There are situations where you can use the mechanical stimulation for about 20 minutes and then get a profound four to five hour pain relief. I think that this is depolarizing the substantial gelatinosa in the back of the spine. Um, I think that there are actually other muscle fibers or other nerve fibers rather that, that can be triggered to give a more sustained pain relief that haven't really been described yet. So we're hoping that by playing around actually with different frequencies, so a hundred Hertz seems to be this, uh, it's too soon to say, but I, I, I'm suspicious that this hundred Hertz maybe one that is um, useful in giving a really long pain relief after the, the vibration has been used. Interesting. Do you, any, uh, do you, do you consult with other professions or liter literature search? I know that this, it's not a, a complete holy grail, but I know that there are other people searching for the same solutions or the same, they're searching for the same magical nerve frequency or a fast stretch mechanism or a direct pressure mechanism. Like everyone is sort of searching for this idea. Um, and it's amazing that from different professions, 
I wonder if people are using cross communication to understand what a massage therapist researcher, I use air quotes there, uh, might be, might have an opinion about this or a uh, dry needling or acupuncture professional might say about it, or somebody who's in physical therapy or chiropractic about these ideas or a surgeon even. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such, it's such an important concept, Bobby, because the language that we use to describe things is really what unlocks understanding them. Yeah, when I began, speak the same language, yeah. Yeah, and when I began looking to find a vibrating motor, because we had one that worked, but I needed to find one that was smaller, and I could not source different motors to try until I found out that what I was looking for was called a cylinder motor. Uh -huh. Once I knew the language, then I could source it. I could go on um, UI and I could go and find things from the, the electronic supply stores, Mauser, et cetera. But until I knew the words, I couldn't do it. A guy named Cascal wrote a paper in 2016 saying, we need to decide on what our verbiage is. Is this focal vibration? Is this uh, local vibration? Is this, and at the time nobody's, I, I mean, think, we're the first ones to use mechanical stimulation, but I think that it's really important. When I'm searching on PubMed, I look up focal vibration, I look up um, segmental vibration. Turns out there's actually a huge body of literature on neurorehabilitation for strokes using focal vibration. And their, their vibratory frequency that helps with gait retraining, um, you can use a focal vibration unit just like ours, they're using ones that are in the 60 hertz to 80 hertz range. I don't think we know yet whether or not um, higher frequencies would help or harm. I, I imagine that probably their lower frequencies are working and that's what you actually need. But um, again, until we've got some really good research mechanisms to, to alter the different frequencies and take into, effect, into account the the volume and the physics of transmission then i think we're still at an early point in the science but one of the big barriers is that we've got to get on board with calling it the same words so that i can look in sports physiotherapy i can look in the chiropractor literature i can look in pt and i can look in um in pain management and find relevant information that is transmissible through all yeah, saying using the using the the common language or common terms is a it's it's a for the listeners of this podcast it's going to be a huge dog whistle because chiropractic's been plagued with using different words for something that easily means the same thing for many other people. What yeah, and um, it, it you know truth is truth, and so yeah. whether we come to an effective modality through a chiropractic education or through physical therapy education or massage therapy or we get there because it just works and then we try to understand why it's still things that make people feel better make them feel better that's right i want i imagine that uh, research has some barriers in this field because it's not pharma related <laughs> is that true or so, false <laughs> oh my lord so so here is the thing i just i realized over the last couple of years that science and pharma have become intertwined. They are, they are conflated. They are not the same thing. But we have come to believe that the only pinnacle of science is doing a double-blind randomized controlled trial, which means you have to have a placebo and it has to be a drug. And so that is so 
wrong for everything we know about how the body works. We are entities in context. Yeah. We are a body that's not just a, um, a set of tissues. We've, we've got understanding, we've got beliefs, we've got trust in the treatment, we've got um, other different parts of the, what we're doing that may have an impact on it. So I think that, that we don't have a respect for physical randomized controlled trials that can't be blinded. If you're giving somebody a good massage, you can't blind it. Now, yeah, acupuncture, they figured out ways to do sham treatments. And so people can be blinded. But I think that the, the point of a lot of our physical therapies is that they're not in isolation. They happen in the, concept, in the construct of, of who the patient is. And that's really important. And we have become believers in drugs to the point that we don't even value science of mechanical and physical solutions to the same degree we do a placebo pill. How am I going to patent? How am I going to patent that? I got it. Right. Well, it's like magnesium. Magnesium is my favorite supplement. It yeah, is an anti-inflammatory. It's a neuro-anti-inflammatory. It's an NMDA blocker. So it makes your opioids go longer if you have to be on them. There's so many good things, but there's no lobby for magnesium. There's no lobby for Borrelia. <laughs> there's no lobby for, for, um, for Boswellia or for, you know, curcumin. So, so consequently, a lot of these really inexpensive treatments get left by the wayside because they don't have a marketing budget. You nailed it. You know what? You nail it without, we, we always never, we don't want to go too far into the weeds of anti-medicine. <laughs> um, so you nailed it. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm, I've I'm had other guests girl. that will go full on conspiracy theory. And it's just like, this is unfortunate. And there yeah. just doesn't seem to be a wave of, of uh, combating it. Like it is what it is right now. And it's just like a inside joke to everybody who's in the medical field or healthcare field is like, man, isn't this some nonsense? Yeah, it's pretty nonsense that this is how medicine and pharma and science are kind of intertwined with each other. Yeah, that kind of sucks. All right, back to work. Well, there, there's several things. I mean, one is, of course, you're up on what you're up on. And so after spending uh, years of biochemistry, pharmacology, and having all of your statistical research be on pharma papers, you're pretty up on it. So yeah. you're used to digesting things in that format. The other thing is, I mean, there absolutely is better living through pharmacy. I mean, goodness knows antibiotics are one of the huge jumps, you know, sulfa drugs were one of the huge jumps in humanity existing. So yeah. that's a big deal. And uh, the right now with coronavirus, you know, they're looking at all these antivirals and things, but um, colchicine, ivermectin, uh, quercetin, which isn't a drug, but uh, still there's, there's a lot of, well, Decadron, you know, there's a lot of repurposed pharmaceuticals that are dirt cheap and don't have a lobby that are showing the most effective interventions against the, the aspects of coronavirus. If we didn't have people who are classically trained in doing research, we would not be as far as we are in addressing coronavirus. Yeah, because it's the mechanism. It's not the virus. It's the yes, mechanism. Yes, and it's yeah. it's the mechanism. It's understanding the immunology. It's um, being able to look at troponins that were coming up really early on, before we even knew that myocarditis and that that the coronavirus sort of shreds the sarcomeres in the heart. But we were seeing in the emergency rooms elevated troponins. 
So you, it does take a long time to learn all of those physiologic and biochemical things that are connected to then the tissues, to the person, to the disease process. That said, it is unquestionable that a lot of medicine is, is more about where the patient is and what the patient wants than it is a multiple choice test. And so we have swung our pendulum too far to one disease process, one answer, one complaint at the doctor's office. And, and that is a shame. Oh yeah. You've, you've laid that out very eloquently. I don't think anyone's going to get angry at you, (laughs) but you're supposed to be a disruptor. You're one of the top 10 disruptors in medical technology. And one of the top I, women to watch in tech. <laughs> what you you have done your homework so much. Well, look you you look at your field in a way that other people don't. You're interested not in following dogma, but you're interested in what works. And yeah. so I think that that is also it's, it's it's something that we have in common is that we're not taking the we're we're taking the meaning of what our professions are, not the letter of the law. Yes. Yes. Uh, the, 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 the license that I have worked or been privileged to be granted uh, allows me certain liberties to pursue what I think is important and ethical under that license. It doesn't mean I have to be a certain way or do a certain thing. Right, right. No, it's, it's, a, it's a very true thing. But I do think we, we need all of us. We need people in various different areas and we need the training. And I think that's one thing that that I don't want to go against the medical profession and be a disruptor in that no. way, because we need to have people who can read yeah. a medical paper. We need we need NIH researchers. We need people who can look at a problem like coronavirus and understand physiology well enough to go, huh, I bet that's transmitted through the nose. I bet that's a totally airborne virus. Yeah. And yeah, totally. figure that out early. It's sort of like the the current political environment where people want to tear down complete establishments to build new ones. And I I don't know if that's the best idea because there's people within the establishments that can actually help with progress much more than if you just eliminate them. Oh, yeah, it's so true. The the medical profession is very valuable. (laughs) Like it it shouldn't even be understated. It is an extremely valuable profession. profession, not just the doctors, but the mechanisms behind hospitals and emergency rooms and primary care and all like it's a very valuable system. No one ever denies any of these massive systems don't need any sort of improvement as we go. But like you said, even just something simple as the sulfa drug has progressed humanity further than we could ever possibly imagine, or immunizations, or sanitation and public health. (laughs) It's like, this stuff is really important. So sometimes in the chiropractic world, because it was brought up as the competitor to medicine in the, I guess you could say the late 1800s, maybe early 1900s. I don't know how that fight kind of started, but it, it, it's like, uh, it's dead now. It's ridiculous for anyone on any medium to say like medicine is bad or yeah. we are anti-medicine. It's like, are you, what planet were you born on? A flat planet? Mm-hmm. A flat, you're well, a I- flat planet person who thinks medicine's bad. <laughs> but I do think I do think that it, it, physical problems need physical solutions. So that is a really easy and obvious connection to make that a lot of times medicine has forgotten. But I think that your point about building up and tearing down is is critically important because I don't think anybody should be allowed to tear down an institution unless you've built one up. Yeah. It is so easy to destroy, and it's very easy to 
become binary and to say, you know what, let's just tear it all down. It's really difficult to build. You know, treaties take a long time to put together. If you think about a building, if you've ever watched one demolished, that's how fast you can destroy things and think about how long it took to build that building. Occasionally you need to, to destroy buildings, but much more often, as you said, it's way better to renovate, figure out a way you can build a bridge from one building to the building next to it, um, modify. But, but once you have taken down an edifice, unless you've got something to replace it already built, building edifices takes time. Yeah, we have an, an irony in chiropractic right now. In one of the states, I don't know how much detail we want to go to, but there's one state in the union that is suing chiropractic in general or the chiropractic association of that state because they use the word nerve or they use the word neurology um, saying that chiropractors can't treat nerves and it's like how and this is the medical association of that state that is trying to sue the chiropractic association of that state saying you can't use the word nerve or that you treat nerves and it's like well everything is the nervous system on some level. So, you know, if you're treating them, if you're working on someone in pain, you are treating a nerve on some level. So this is the absurdity of tearing things down for political gain instead of building up a, an alliance or an understanding or a coalition that can actually help the people we're supposed to help, which are people that are suffering. Right. Well, it's interesting how people get proprietary about words without looking at the meaning. Neuromodulation, for example, has come to mean implanted electrical stimulation to right. short the pain transmission. But neuromodulation is, happens every time you put an ice pack on. It happens every time you, you get a massage or every time you rub your rump elbow. All of those are neuromodulation. Nobody no, should have no. a right to, to make that mean something that it doesn't. We have, we have learned doctors with oak bookcases with mahogany, mahogany bookcases of leather bound books that say that we own the word neuromodulation. <laughs> <laughs> and they pay us a lot of money as lobbyists to make sure that we own that word neuromodulation. One thing I've noticed about you as we start to close out uh, when I met you, and then I've seen it in other podcasts or other interactions that you had with people is you've got a tough job you sort of, you have to lay down a foundation of education, of understanding, or at least I'd imagine on your end of things, you have to understand how much people know about what you're talking about before you start talking about it. And then when that foundation is laid down, then you're able to get into what it's all about. Uh, do you agree with that? <laughs> Am I, is my accession, is my uh, uh, observation close? Do you feel like that's a frustrating thing or is that just what you got to do when you're trying to break ground? Mm, yes. <laughs> I, I appreciate you recognizing that. I don't think I do a very good job of it. I think that I have been trying for 10 years to figure out how to put lay terms around some of the physiology that we're using without dumbing it down or making it seem less profound than it is. Yes. I, no, the, I feel you. I get it. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, I do think that that mechanical stimulation is at least part of the right answer. I think that there will be multiple different devices that involve different frequencies of vibration in people's medicine cabinets in 50, maybe even 20 years. You know, your, your kid is going to have a little vibrating bee to go put on the, the bug bite or the itch or the atopic dermatitis 
or where they bump their elbow because that works for them. And you're going to have a, a cuffs that go around ankles for the people who've been having strokes and are trying to, to get over leg drop. And so I do think that whether or not I'm able to communicate it well, again, truth carries its own coercion. And yeah. so it will be what is used because it works and that's how the body works. The frustration of taking a new modality and then getting the monolithic centers of Medicaid and Medicare to pay for it. Because if you don't get something paid for, it's not going to get used. And that is, um, that is more frustrating to me than trying to figure out how to communicate this. It's that our systems are designed to pay for drugs. They're not designed to incorporate new research and understanding and then allocate our resources appropriately. Keep doing things like this. I don't, I don't, you think you're not, because it just doesn't cut through the butter as quick as you'd like, but it's working. <laughs> I'm sorry if it takes 20 years, but obviously you're on a mission. <laughs> uh, no one's going to stop you from your mission anyways. Um, so please just keep going. I, I appreciate you. Well, and Bobby, you know, I really, I'm when so we met, it was, at, it was at the Forward 19 conference, and I was being pulled 50 different ways, but it doesn't mean that I couldn't look you. What people know about me specifically, a little info about me, is they know that I judge character. I can judge character pretty darn accurately, pretty darn fast. Unless someone's a narcissist, they're hard to figure out. But when I met you, I knew that you are on your stuff, and you know what you're talking about, and you're uh, passionate and committed, and uh, this isn't, these aren't half steps you're taking towards us. You're, you're all in. And, uh, and I can appreciate that about you. Wow. I, I very much appreciate that. Coming from you, that is a huge compliment. I'm nobody. I, it doesn't matter what I think. I'm just letting people know what they should think. <laughs> You're not afraid to have a double-boarded NIH researcher on and know that you can hold your own with them. And that is magnificent. And that is really unusual, I think, and, and as you laid it out, you know, there's people who want to make this an artificial dichotomy in an us versus them. And so yeah. your openness to whatever works and to talking and learning and being constantly a, a student is is really inspiring. Nah, these pa the, the patients come first, the veterans, the people who've suffered from addiction, uh, the people who have families that if they can just break these chains of of pain or addiction or inability to adapt and, and engage in activities that are beneficial for their, their lives and their families' lives. That's the only thing that matters to me at all. So this whole thing that I'm doing is just to motivate people and get them excited and get them to remain active in this fight to, to fight for people's lives. Because at some point you're going to have somebody walk into your office in one of our chiropractic or physical therapy offices where they might not tell you, but if you can't help them, this is it for them. They're giving up, hmm. either giving up physically or giving up the ghost, or they're just not going to try anymore. So uh, it's very important that we, we do what's best for people first. And that's the most important thing to me. Um, well I said. want you to have the opportunity to talk about FibroCool one more time, tell people about it, tell people how they can use it in their practice, and then we'll wrap this thing up. <laughs> That's like first we feast. It's the very end of the hot sauce show. All right. Tell yeah. people what to do. <laughs> we didn't uh, even talk about the shark tank. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. You're just I, too much of a big deal. People need to look more into Amy Baxter's stuff. So I will have to come on the show again. I'll talk. I'll, so I'll that's spill a, the tea. Yeah, on yeah. Shark no, tank. no. Yeah, we can, we can do so, part 
part five to part 20, uh, but be sure to let people know where they can find VibraCool. I'm going to let them know about a, an offer for the FTCA listeners and all that stuff. Um, but let them know where they can find out more and what they need to know, all that stuff. Give us your pitch. All right. So we are Pain Care Labs and at paincarelabs.com, you can find VibraCool. We have four different models. We have one for plantar fasciitis. We have one for the knee, which is called the extended. We have an elbow, which is an easy fit. So you can put it on one handed on tendinopathies, carpal tunnel, and we have a flex unit. And the flex unit is a TheraBand with a pocket. So you can put it on your neck, on your hip, on your low back. All of them are $69.95, except for the Flex, which is $79.95. They are FDA 510K cleared to treat muscle tension and muscle restriction. And they come with everything you need. They're safe with pacemakers. Patients can use them themselves and they're effective on contact. So if it's gonna make somebody feel better, you know right away. We also have a lot of my passion, which is other information about what works for pain. So there's a free download that has everything from supplements to natural and herbal options to physical treatments to mind-body solutions and the correct dosages of things. So people don't ever need to give up. There's always something you haven't tried or some other combination of a physical solution and a mind-body. It's almost an infinite number of options. So come get a Vibracool, get your 20% off, but don't neglect the fact that that pain is multimodal. You will be able to conquer it. And there are a lot of different ways that you can put different things together to make your body feel better and live the life you want. Awesome. Dr. Amy Baxter. Yes, I think we shall do this again and again <laughs> and again. We'll have like the Amy Baxter month. <laughs> Woohoo! Next time you need to have a video so that I can. I yeah, can so we are, we're definitely committed season three. We're going to start doing video and then uh, that way we can put these podcasts up on YouTube as well. Um, so we got it all covered. Like we've got iTunes, Spotify, all of them. We just don't have uh, YouTube so we can get, so we can get the YouTube up there as well. I'm learning as I go too. Magnificent. Doc, thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you and seeing you again sometime. Well, Doc, I appreciate you having me. And uh, anon, we shall meet anon. <laughs>